how do you price an ad on your channel? That's probably the most common question we get from other creators. And it was the biggest question we had when we first started on YouTube. So we're hosting a live workshop on how to price yourself. This is everything that we've learned in the past 13 years of being on YouTube and our simple three-step process that'll help you develop concrete pricing. So if you wanna join us for this live session, just go to colinandsamir.com slash live. Enter your email and you'll get all the information about our live event on May 9th. All right, hope you enjoy this episode of The Colin and Samir Show. Today on the Colin and Samir podcast, we're incredibly excited to bring you a conversation with our good friend, Paul Rabel. Paul is a professional athlete, an entrepreneur, a creator, a podcaster, and just the most driven individual we've ever met. He's a professional lacrosse player and on the field is oftentimes referred to as the LeBron James of lacrosse. And off the field, he's referred to as... He is lacrosse's first million dollar man. Lacrosse's first million dollar man. But it doesn't stop there. Paul has invested in and started multiple successful businesses, both in and out of the sports landscape, and most recently has launched his biggest venture ever, the Premier Lacrosse League. With this new venture, he's not only looking to change professional lacrosse, but he's also creating something that will undoubtedly change the way we view professional sports in the future, which is something we talk about on this episode. We first met Paul in 2014 when we created a partnership with him to start a YouTube channel. Over the course of the past five years, we've created hundreds of videos together, amassed a subscriber base of over 160,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel and created an award-winning docu-series. Most importantly, we've developed a very strong friendship. On this episode, we talk about what it means to be more than an athlete. We talk about how he utilizes his social platforms to share his personal beliefs, even when they might not be universally accepted. We also talk about the value of feedback and how Paul thinks about self-care. Paul has been a great mentor to us throughout our creative journey. He continues to inspire us with his creativity and ambition. And I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with our good friend, Paul Rabel. All right, man. Do you well, guys not edit this? Wow. Is that, that was, no, it's going to be completely unedited. So, is, Has that no, been we the do vibe? Ed- no, we do yeah, edit it. There was a lot of emphasis on you pressing <laughs> this record button. <laughs> it just <laughs> felt like a big get, moment. So, yeah. I went from relaxed to <laughs> nervous. It felt like there was like a sound effect in the room as we pressed start. <laughs> that was wild. Like, <laughs> you do it with all your guests? <laughs> I just kind of want to build tension, you know? <laughs> Samir just locked in eye contact with our guest, Paul. Just stared you in the face and pressed start record. Before that, he even said, are you ready? Yeah. Wow. That <laughs> Twice. was so yeah. intense. I know. Well, are you ready? From podcaster to podcaster, that that felt threatening. <laughs> so I was like, wait a second here. Is this live? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of podcaster to podcaster, the first podcast we were ever on was your podcast. Mm-hmm. That's pretty wild. Like Remember now, that? I mean, you know, we've done ton of our own podcasts. We've been on other podcasts, yeah. but I remember being incredibly nervous to be on your podcast. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a big learning experience. Cause you asked me a question. You asked a question of like, tell me your story or something. Mm. And I started talking and I think it was 25 minutes later that I stopped, <laughs> <laughs> that I stopped talking. Yeah. And I was like, Colin, you got anything? Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. I just, I just told that story for 25 it minutes. It was a great story. But I've learned a lot, um, and I was just talking on, our, on a podcast recently, that podcasting has taught me how to listen. Mm. Because 
a lot of times as we started podcasting, we would have guests, I would be watching them speak back, but I would be thinking of my next question without mm. listening to them at all. Yeah. So I think just starting with that point, I think you, you starting a podcast is what got us into podcasting. And I think on your podcast, we also talked about, you know, how we all work together to get into, uh, into creating content for you, video it, content. Podcasting is, is so dynamic. It's, uh, it's, it's capturing this conversation, but made for uh, listenership. And so there are so many different ways that you can go about it. There's the Q&A that uh, I think does really well and, and makes a ton of sense. And that's a, a lot how I structure my pod because I, I want to really get specific around an origin story like you told with, with your father and, and then Colin, how you guys built the lacrosse network. And that was really dynamic. But then you also have to be able to go off on a number of tangents and free flow. Uh, I did a podcast where I was most challenged as a guest with Aubrey Marcus that just came out recently on his podcast. And he didn't ask me one question. He would just talk. And then I could tell when he was closing his point and expecting me to jump in. And I was either going to like be additive or just agree. And in many cases, it was difficult because he's like so smart and thoughtful around, I think, you know, progressive uh, you know, topics, subject matter that, that we all kind of align with. So most of his ideas, I just wanted to be like, yeah, you got it. That's it. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Um, so anyway, I, I agree. I, I learned a ton uh, when I launched my show about how to listen, I also learned tactically um, some some things that I think make sense in regular conversation where we give each other verbal cues mm -hmm. that we're engaged. And sometimes in the audio form, that can be annoying for the listener. So I learned to actually try to shut it down entirely when my guest is talking. Um, you guys are doing that now. You're That's like, what we're doing right now. I know. Almost so just, you, I almost you, just said, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, 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 totally. But you can't. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting though that you learn it. I, I find that you know obviously you're being a professional athlete, having to work on your craft so much in sport. That starting to work with you on content creation, I re I remember recognizing really early that you became a hyper observer of those around you and of like getting better every single time we filmed with you because you were working on the craft. Yeah, and I felt coming into podcasting, I was like, I speak to a camera all the time. I speak to an audience. I, I can do this, but it was such a foreign thing to do. And then I had to really listen to other podcasts and start to understand what, how are these people actually doing this craft of podcasting? And you start to respect the craft yeah. once you get into is, it. Is, is it Shay Carl, who is the founder of Maker? Uh, he was, right? yeah, he was part of that. He was part of the team, founding yeah. group. Uh, it was awesome to hear, and I, sh I share in this experience with him, uh, the encouragement to all uh, to kind of get in front of a camera or a microphone and whether your goal is to create a YouTube series or a podcast series or just hear and learn yourself. It, it is like it's such an immediate feedback loop to learn whether it's eye contact, the way you articulate, um, you know, certain nuances in the way that you talk that I think are all worth improving. Most of what we uh, strive for in life comes down to uh, our ongoing progression uh, in whatever is in front of us in the present moment, in the future, learning from the past. And that drives a lot of fulfillment personally, I know for, for the three of us here. Uh, and so when I look at 
my experience on YouTube, which started with you guys, to starting a podcast and an email newsletter and so on, is it's a continual learning experiment, and uh, and that is incredibly valuable, uh, that and and something that I that I draw a lot of um, a lot of energy around in life. When we first started working together, I remember really thinking about the concept of an athlete and that there was two ways that you could take an athlete um, brand. One was sensational, which I always viewed Kobe Bryant as like a sensational brand. He was kind of unattainable. Hmm. Um, and then we, we started working with Jeremy Lin and I noticed he was so human. Like he had such a human touch to him. Yep. And you know, obviously I think your brand today is incredibly human we get to interact with you across social platforms, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or a newsletter, um, read your thoughts. Uh, and then also across YouTube where we get a more raw version of you and then a podcast. So as a professional athlete, you've really leaned into that access yeah. to the audience. Um, and since even launching YouTube, you've gone even deeper and deeper and deeper to showing people behind the scenes of not only your life, but now of your new business. Why do you think it's valuable or you know, what, how do you look at giving the audience access to you versus shielding off some of it to keep it, I guess, more of a mystery? I was going to say, too, I also want to make it clear that you as an athlete, you know, taking to social media, you were doing it in college. You were doing, yeah. you know, live hangouts on YouTube. Yeah. So it was something that you started very early with. And I think that's the root of this question is, is why did you take to it? so early yeah so there are a few things that i want to uh, hit on and i hope i remember them i don't know i was gonna like bring a notepad out so i could jot ideas down because you know often we we go into subject matter that is multi-layered uh, so to your first point the aspirational athlete i thought michael jordan uh was was like the consummate aspirational athlete and what he did with Gatorade as his sponsor was sought after humanizing him in that Be Like Mike campaign. That's something that I think about all the time. And they were actually able to maintain that balance of keeping him as this you know, motivational, aspirational character that was one of a kind, once in a generation, likely no one to ever be like, but could also bring him down through the right partners in those Be Like Mike campaigns where he was on the uh, hoops court out in a neighborhood playing with kids. Um, and that's all done through traditional media. So what we had an opportunity to do as athletes is to build that connection more regularly if we decided to. And I even think Tom Brady, who's been the aspirational athlete for his last 18 years of playing now has jumped into Instagram and has created that humanizing element. Um, what I'll share as to why for me specifically as a lacrosse player, is, uh, is that we had no access to linear media until what we're building now, which is our pro lacrosse league called the PLL. Um, but to create or, you know, so to speak, survive as a professional in our spaces, you had no other choice but to market yourself. And those tools at our wayside were now social media to build a direct connection uh, with an audience, which is really valuable to a brand if they're looking to sponsor an athlete, is that they can get access to that athlete's audience. Um, so that's how I didn't necessarily fully understand what I was doing then. I just knew that I was able to communicate with lacrosse fans through, at the time, this was in 2008, with Facebook when they launched their, their sports pages, athlete pages, and business pages. Says previously, 
they just had the peer-to-peer, and that was capped at having 5,000 fans. Colin, to your point, when we were in the national championship game my junior year, that was on ESPN, I then started seeing an uptick. I would accept all friend requests. Facebook had just lowered the barrier to enter to to 16-year-olds versus previously just being in college. And then at one point, my senior year, I had you know, plus 10,000 friend requests pending, and I was already at the 5,000 cap. So when Facebook created their business pages and fan pages and stuff, it was unlimited. So you could then access those people who wanted to connect with you. Uh, so I, I saw that there was real value being built there, um, and I was an early adopter to Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat as a result. Uh, but I think why I enjoy doing it, which is the third point here, is that uh, going back to where we're driving fulfillment as individuals uh, in life is is on connection with others. And that's why relationships are so valuable to people uh, having conversations like we're having now um, and, and to be able to do so with a cohort of people that care about the same thing that you do, which is in my case lacrosse. That was really important to me. And you can break down that barrier by showing your true self and having a real conversation with someone um, and, and, and really like the unlimited nature of doing so through social versus being limited to a 15 or 30 second ad on television. So outside of the Be Like Mike campaign and witnessing that yeah. and understanding that that was something that you wanted for your brand, when you did take to social way back when, was there anyone that you were looking up to in the sports space? Or yeah. where were you getting guidance on that? Or were you, were you just someone who came about during that time so it was natural that these Facebook likes were coming your way? It was natural to yeah. put yourself on Google Hangouts and things like that. So I, I actually, um, I don't think there were very many athletes. I, I'll tell you, um, the group who helped me build my Facebook fan page was uh, an agency that Red Bull had hired. And Red Bull was an early sponsor of mine in 2009. Uh, and they had hired this agency, and Red Bull is super forward-thinking, uh, and I'm still a partner of theirs. And they hired an agency sniffing out the same potential that I did, except I didn't know how to, you know, there, were, there weren't like sports teams at Facebook at the time that were dedicated to helping athletes or even teams curate their, their fan pages. They were just opening up the opportunity. So this agency came in, and uh, I remember it was myself, it was Reggie Bush, um, and I think one other Red Bull athlete at the time that they were building these platforms around. So, you know, we were, for lack of uh, better knowledge, like some of the first athletes in to start doing this. So to look at other athletes, I, I don't think that was as available, uh, but I was looking at other influencers. Um, and then, you know, I I dropped my YouTube channel. So I had uh, I had started it because... It was the only platform, I, I think Vimeo at the time, uh, there, there may have been a paywall or I couldn't figure it out. Um, and I was using those uh, flip cams to more or less vlog. And so I was uh, uploading it to the internet and then I would just, I guess YouTube had the most powerful SEO at the time. I, I think it was probably still pre-Google acquisition. So I found my way on the platform and I was uploading it. I say that because I stopped doing it for a while and then I met you guys and we relaunched that channel. I remember a conversation we had where it was like, wait, you have a YouTube channel already? And Paul, it already has like 5,000 subs or something like that. Um, and, uh, and let's use that as, as a starting point. So there wasn't, uh, there wasn't as much 
uh, wherewithal for me as to where I'd at least be now. Uh, I, I, I'd, I'd like to think there was, but I don't think there, there was. And, and so anyway, when we got together, uh, a few of the guys that we looked at were, uh, was actually Casey Neistat and then Dude Perfect. And mm-hmm. we ended up collaborating with one of them. Uh, but I learned that, um, at least on that medium, you needed to, uh, you needed to almost like accentuate how you vibed with your audience. And, uh, and there were, you know, tactics that we used from short jump cuts to, you know, elevating your tone and, mm-hmm. uh, What's using up, YouTube? gestures, yeah. <laughs> right? Just telling people right. that you're there. Cause you have to capture attention there. And, uh. And so that, that's, that's some of the stuff that I probably pulled. When you first started on YouTube or Facebook and you were saying you were still in college when you were um, starting to use these platforms, what was the vibe of your, the rest of your teammates? Yeah. Were they, did they look at that and be like, what are you doing, Paul? Or yeah. was it like, oh, he's building a brand? No, no clue. No clue. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I, I, you hear kids, you try to like pull from the younger generation's vernacular on like what's next and what's coming. And right now, like everyone's using uh, the abbreviated form of merchandise into merch. Like you have these 11 year olds be like, yo, what's your guys merch strategy at PLL? <laughs> I'm like, huh? Mike and I have talked about this. Uh, so about five, maybe seven years ago, the, the, the cliche that was being used by the 12 to 15 year olds was brand. Everyone was like, Hey, what, what do you, how do you think about your brand? So I say that because in 2008, like no one was really referring to brand building, even on the commercial level, uh, much less the influencer level. So, uh, I didn't have conversation with my athletes wasn't, or my teammates and peers. I wasn't exposed to that one because they weren't on the platforms. Mm. Um, and then two, uh, you know, I had just graduated. So there was that degree of separation where they went off and, you know, took their jobs in finance or real estate and have a buddy that came out here in entertainment. Um, and so pro lacrosse for a long time was very isolated as a part-time league. Uh, so I got the chance to do a lot of my brand building and brand work on my own. And then I'd come in certainly on weekends when I was playing professionally uh, not too many people would like say it to my face, but I definitely knew that there was this like kind of elbowing uh, going on of like, oh, you know, Paul's this narcissist and he's like talking about himself all the time. And and that's like, you know, I was I was much more defensive and young and insecure in like that 22 to, to probably 28 year old range where I would push back on that. But the reality now is like, Hey, uh, to, if you're trying to build a business and the businesses for pro athletes are on field wages, off field wages in media, off field wages are your sponsors and appearance opportunities that comes from your influence and your ability to aggregate an audience. So if you care about off the field revenue, which by the way, can continue on when you're done playing on field, then you've got to be able to create some type of message or you've got to, uh, align yourself with uh, you know, core values, and you do that through messaging. Yeah, so it's fascinating to me because today, if you're uh, like publicly saying you want to become a creator, it's totally encouraged, right? Because creating on platforms, sharing your life, if you want to be an entrepreneur, it's like, great, you have more content, that's, that's excellent. Now you can actually 
you know, engage an audience and sell something to them. It's totally like the playbook is totally understood. Yeah. But back then it, no, it feels wasn't. like it wasn't understood across the, just the general public. But then in sports, it's like even more what's going on. Yeah. Right. And so that, that to me was always fascinating when I did come across the fact that you already had a YouTube channel and that you were uploading. I remember my mind was blown by that. I was yeah. like, wow, that's, that's pretty in- incredibly forward thinking because a, just me as a post-collegiate kid, I think like my insecurities, like I segmented what I was doing on YouTube. I didn't want my friends watching it because I was insecure about it. It was early in that, like being a YouTuber wasn't cool. Yeah. Um, but then when I think about it in sport, like when you're around your teammates all the time, like I can imagine that it would be easy to, to just say like, I'm, uh, never mind, I'm not going to do this. It's easy because there's fear of what your friends are going to say, or your peer group. And then it's also easy because it's hard to create. Uh, one of the things that we often talk about is that um, it's hard to create. It's, it's slightly easier to start to create and like launch a YouTube channel or launch a podcast. And then it gets dramatically difficult to continue to do so. And then almost to the point of like, this is a full-time job. Uh, if you take it to the level where it needs to be, which is continue to do so consistently and learning and changing and being you know, receptive to feedback and building. Um, you know, it's, it's like, it, it's a, I guess another example, it, it turns from a hobby very quickly to, you know, a, a full-time job. And so if it is, if you're an athlete, you know, your full-time job is playing and training and performing and making sure you're on it from a physical therapy standpoint, scouting, video, communicative standpoint with your teammates and coaches. So it can be distracting. But the other piece is, it, it also gets, uh, it also has, it takes on a different reputation depending on the sport. So if you look at like the big four, and that's the NBA, NFL, MLB, and NHL, um, they each have their own cultures around it. The NBA is far more in modern times receptive to brand building individually of their athletes. The NFL probably less so, but that's for a different reason than Major League Baseball and NHL. MLB and NHL have these like cultures built around them for no player to stand out. That's kind of locker room and that's pattern based all the way to the early 1900s of the way they played the games. In the NFL, it's just a league driven by the owners and the coaches and the, the, the lifespan of an athlete. It's ephemeral nature is like down to two, two and a half years. These players by position outside of quarterback, they're pretty commoditized. So if you're going to run the risk of like spending time on social and building a brand and that can be perceived from your coach or GM as distracting to your performance on field, they're going to move you. So there's more of a threat in the NFL at a level from the players that I don't think gets talked about or shared enough. Um, that, that's probably why you see fewer, fewer athletes doing it there. I'd love to understand from you, I think, What's interesting in some of those big four sports is that as a player, you come with distribution. If you're, if you're in the NBA, you come with a lot of distribution to a lot of households through like primetime network yep. programming. You get that distribution. You just get that distribution. So you, in, in a sport that did not have that distribution, you chose to take to social media very early and you talked about players standing out. You know, not only did you stand out you know, amongst uh, the league, you were the main lacrosse. If someone said pro lacrosse player, it was Paul Rabel. Or Paul Rabel. 
or, or sometimes Rubio. it was Rabiel yeah. or Rabel. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you were the lacrosse player in general media and still in many ways are. Did that come with a level of pressure to actually stand out that much? Or how did you look at that? Yeah. You- so I, I think part of it was a, a lot of it, I should say, was fortune. And then I, I graduated at a time with other tremendous lacrosse players that were setting records on the point side and winning national championships as well. Um, you know, it, from a marketer standpoint or from a brand's capacity, a lot of it, the fortune comes from like their decision collectively and it's biased. All decisions are biased uh, when they come down to people because we all have these narratives that we develop over our lifetime. But the folks that make the decision on behalf of brands to endorse an athlete, that's from some influence somewhere. And I was chosen on a few cases by Under Armour early on, by Red Bull early on. Um, and then New Balance, Warrior, GoPro, TRX, these groups uh, started adding on. So I was chosen. That was luck. Second came to, uh, you know, a time in lacrosse where at the pro level we introduced uh, like a fastest shot competition. And competitions uh, are often illuminated in sports and get shared. And this was right around virality as well and the uptick of what we're talking about here. And I shot the ball at a world record speed and Guinness covered it. And I had this long hair at the time. It wasn't a part of a master plan, but I was like this six foot three, 220 pound athlete that was the contrarian of what you typically saw a lacrosse athlete or how the lacrosse athlete was displayed in mainstream sports media. And uh, I had this big like, kind of growl and tongue sticking out and I shot the ball over 110 miles an hour. Um, and then brands started getting behind that. So they started building the traction for me at a couple of commercials around shooting the ball fast. And then I was able to use that ramp up to then continue on on social and i thought that helped elevate me and my commercial viability Uh, so there's a lot of like in outside influence that leads to uh the growth of of an athlete or an influencer commercially uh it's rare to see someone build it from scratch Uh, we certainly did some some cool campaigns that that got virality one of them was throwing the ball across the baltimore harbor which was kind of on a whim and you edited it Brad, Brad Calder helped out, but yeah, he helped. But yeah, well, I remember we you, were you, all in it. I, I only say that because you thought I edited it completely. That's right. And then you found out we had a ghost editor. Well, that was and when I, I felt first found I, out. I felt bad <laughs> that I didn't tell you. That's right. You know, because we had a run where I'd been editing all your videos, all of them, all of them, and working with you on all of it them. It was really great. Yeah, that's what I thought we were going to spend most that's, of our time on. That's actually really. <laughs> you know what? Actually, it's such an intimate relationship. For editing and yeah, for some, like for you to send over raw footage, you know, yeah, and for us to work through the raw footage and you know actually develop a, and edit out of it, it's it's a very intimate relationship. This, this is probably where you also thought I was uh, realized how like OCD in some cases psychotic I am about my content, the content I put out. It's like I wasn't just uh, offloading, you know an hour or two hours of footage, I would go on with my minimal quick time skills and trim these videos down. And then Mm -hmm. I would go into the titling of each video and I would label them in numerical order. So Colin knew at least like how my brain was thinking about how the edit should go. And then he would do all the magic. Brad would do all the magic. Uh, That's completely outsourced now to Brett who was just in here and he does everything soup to nuts for me. So I just get to like be on screen, but I, I also have, far less bandwidth than I did when we were first creating. Yeah, I remember being blown away with how meticulous you were 
about going into all of those raw clips, editing them down, putting a separate name to them. Yeah. Couldn't believe that I was getting drop boxes that were so well organized. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what other pro athlete who had who was training in a professional league would be able or would be interested in this level of detail. Yeah. And I was blown away was, with that. And and you also forced us to be very thoughtful in our feedback because you were such a stu- you were so focused to what we were saying. Yeah that we had to be very specific with the feedback that we gave you because we knew, for the most part, you would take it very seriously. Yeah, I would take it very seriously. We could talk about it, the the uh, trade that I had as an example mm-hmm. from um, Boston and New York. That was pretty cool, mm-hmm. uh, the way we thought about that and like basically launched our own press conference. We didn't, I didn't give press to anyone around that trade and we did a YouTube video on it that I shot in my basement. <laughs> And we had like a step and repeat. Mind sent. you, your your basement was very well like designed. You had, so you were on some show, weren't you? And they like yeah, man caves. Your, yeah, and they designed your basement. So it's not for the like, YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was cool. It was awesome. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Good point to uh, <laughs> illustrate that I wasn't like going out <laughs> yeah. into a cave. Yeah. And, um, but I, I'll I'll say my first my first set of vlogs I was shooting exclusively on a GoPro, mm-hmm. and uh, and the lighting and the audio uh, was just super raw. This was probably like the Hero 3 or so. And then um, I bought my first DSLR, and then I bought an external mic, and then I bought a ring light, and then we started like started learning a little bit more based on my time with you guys. Yeah, because you were producing your own videos yeah. in the beginning. You would just, I mean, you would shoot them by yourself. And, you know, I it's tough for me even now, seven years later of being on camera, to shoot a YouTube video alone. It's so much easier for me to do it when Colin's in the room. Man, it's crazy. It's I would, hard. I would carve out, <clears throat> it would take a whole day to get everything over to Colin so mm-hmm. Colin and Brad could you know do their magic and and so I would have to I remember on Sundays I would carve out time in my calendar to think through a concept because I'd have to get it over to you guys by Monday for a Wednesday release mm-hmm. and I would block off time in many cases I'd get to Sunday I'd have no idea what I'd shoot and then when you're shooting 52 weeks of content I think we reached a point where it was probably four to five straight years of a, of a video every, every week. week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it was nuts. I remember so, when you broke your foot too. Yeah. And we had to then think around it. And that's when we came up with Rabel's Kitchen. Yeah. Which is a great series. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I'm, I'm definitely OCD. Uh, I'm also highly insecure. So that's why like, I think, well, like at least a reflection, I would trim these things down and be so meticulous to your point, Colin, around it because I just wanted it to come off in a way that I felt people would uh, like or approve of. Um, and, and you could, I could try to frame that as, you know, being a marketer and trying to like hack attention, but you could also look at, and I think it's a healthy balance of having both is, is, uh, is your own ego. Um, but the, 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 like the evolution that we went on together was, was pretty fascinating. It was like, we were drinking from the fire hose. It's a huge cliche to, to say that in, in uh, startup culture and entrepreneurship and so on. But, uh, we were just going, you know, one video at a time every week, I would go out to a field. I would have my own kind of like cheap tripods. In some cases I would do a two shot. I would take all that footage, I would offload it on my computer, I would trim it, I would upload it to Dropbox, and then I would send you the link. There were at least 10, 20 videos you know, that I shot over that probably two to three year period on the outset, which is you know, almost half a year's worth. 
that I would shoot and I would get to the place where I would upload all of it onto my camera and it would be all out of focus. My, my head would be out of the shot on one of them. You know, the, the mic wasn't on and I would start sweating. <laughs> I'd be like, I don't have time for this shit. I gotta move on. And I would have to go reshoot it. Oh, man, that was hard. And, and the, the funny thing is now is um, we, you know, I, I'm fortunate to have like continued to build this brand and invest in payroll and, and have a team around me to create better content, more engaging, more consistent content. Um, and and the, the challenging part now is as a co-founder of the PLL and, and building infrastructure for our players to lean in like I did with you guys, uh, is that the expectation and this kind of dovetails back to your earlier question for creators now is so high because there's so many of us and the content out there is so rich that if you're a college kid in a sport coming out and you're like, well, I want to create, but I don't have a content guy. That's like what a lot of the lacrosse players say. I don't have a content guy. Um, and you're like, well, look at the stuff that I started with. Um, and, and there's, there's some truth to it to just get going. I know you guys talk about that a lot, just go out and create. Uh, but there's also the reality of these guys just coming out now and just the bars higher. Um, and so you got to get there somehow. The cool thing now though, is that there's so many platforms back then when we, I mean, when we all started creating YouTube was the only place you could upload a video on the internet, maybe Vimeo, maybe there were some other places, but yeah. like really publicly and socially, YouTube was the only place to upload a video. You couldn't upload a video to Instagram. You definitely couldn't pull out your phone and live stream, you know, yourself to an audience. Totally. You broadcast yourself. There just wasn't, that wasn't available. You couldn't even post a photo, which is the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, yeah. I guess on Instagram or on, on Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. I mean, Instagram didn't yeah. exist but, but when mobily, like you weren't really consuming no. Facebook. One, like one call that I want to give you though, you asked me about YouTube is that, and it just kind of goes into why that platform perhaps, or the fortune aspect of, of what got me to here is there was this kid, his name was Josh Lane. Mm. He yeah, uh, grew up in Maryland. He ended up going to Florida. And now I think he still does predator work for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Let me uh, preface what predator means. Producer, editor. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You guys, I mean, we know we're on a creator podcast. I assume yeah, everyone okay. knows producer. Right. Well, editor. I don't know. I don't know who came up with predator, but I, I think they shouldn't have come up with it. I don't think we need that term <laughs> to be honest. Fair enough. Yeah. But you're seeing it now. JD's everywhere well, on all of the leagues. It's a producer. I wrote editor, producer. Editor. I wrote JD's for predators. When you did. And uh, JD is job description. Yeah. We're throwing out jargon now. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I opened it up with the fire hose thing. Um, so, so Josh Lane created a highlight video for me after my junior year, that championship game that was on ESPN. And that thing is probably one of the most viewed lacrosse videos. It was a highlight video of Paul Rabel. And I didn't know this kid. He decided to put it together of all the games that were on television. So I saw this big uptick. That probably led to the funnel of Facebook followers. And that's fortunate. Um, I worked with him and he's done a few things for me since then. And I think at the time I sent him some Under Armour shoes as like a thank you um, because it, it impacted me not only from a destination of platform standpoint, but also like understanding where value could be had as a pro player. So since then, you know, that's a highlight tape, right? And that, that's stuff when you think about an athlete, highlight tapes, workouts, yeah. meals, like nutrition, stuff like that. Uh, but the, your brand and your content has grown into being more personal and sharing stuff about you starting a business, um, stuff about your life, uh, letting us in. And 
you've also shared some of your points of view, yeah. um, stuff about social uh, points of views, whether that's uh, women's rights or um, equality when it comes to LGBTQ, yeah. uh, being an ally. And there's been pushback from the community, from the sports community, lacrosse community specifically. Um, how do you view that? Like sharing yeah. some of those more personal perspectives, stuff that maybe, you know, I know when we're talking about creators, Casey Neistat had a lot of pushback when he shared his point of view on the election and that he was going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Mm. Um, there's a lot of angry fans yeah. and, and a lot of people who came after him for that. So yeah. how, how do you view that as an athlete? And let's let's talk a little bit about some sure. of the more significant moments, like, you know, sharing about, I think it was Women's Rights. Women's or, Rights Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Women's Rights Day. So let's talk about yeah. that and how you uh, National that. LGBTQ Month in, in June, and then the, the parade that I would typically uh, get behind and celebrate was in New York uh, every year at the end of, the, end of, the, end of that month. Um, and then, of course, here in February, um, Black History Month. So I, I think it's bestowed upon us as athletes and then you could you could also roll influencers into this as uh probably the few folks in this world that are in a position to speak their truth and and share their message uh, or their narrative with others and and the why uh and and provide some personal anecdotes as well uh, because those people, athletes and influencers, sit at the intersection of multiple cohorts of people with different interests. Um, and, and why that is unique is because of where Google and Facebook primarily have evolved as mass platforms with billions of users actively daily on them, is that it's turned into this like perpetual cycle of based on your interests, based on your search algorithms, you're going to more and more isolate yourself into this bubble around your beliefs and, and what you expose yourself to. Like if you're a, if you're a, you know, a Republican voter, then it, it's very likely that your Twitter following are, you know, Republican analysts, Republican news networks, Republican friends, and all you're getting is shared content and retweets and forwards around the stuff that you already believe in. And the flip side for Democratic voters, and by the way, I view that like, you know, social equalities, uh, whether it's, you know, closing that gap uh, uh, from from gender, female to male in the workforce in sports or encouraging more LGBTQ uh, young women and men to participate in sports like that has nothing to do with politics. Um, I think it just has to do with with being the right doing the right thing and and caring about other people. All that said, when an athlete like LeBron James posts uh, or Casey Neistat as an influencer posts or what I post, we, because of people agnostic of their beliefs following athletes and sports teams or an influencer, we get the exposure to all different types of people. So in other words, like I'm not Sean Hannity, right? And so you're not going to find many like progressive uh, Democrats watching Sean Hannity, right? And so, like, they're not going to be up in arms about something that he makes up uh, on Monday night. Uh, but if, you know, if you take LeBron James or Casey as an example, he has conservatives, he has Democrats, he has, um, you know, pro LGBTQ, he has anti LGBTQ, um, all of that following him. So when he says something, he's going to get 
equal pushback. Uh, so I think as, as a creator, you have to be understanding of that. The tip that I would give is that, you know, it's one thing to share your beliefs and then it's another thing to be as confidently educated on your position and be able to share that and then lean into the responses that you'll get and do so empathically uh, and do so rationally and, and kind of with kitty gloves. And so I remember posting, uh, I, I had a, a, sh a shirt on, um, on Women's Rights Day and, uh, it was a, and I wear a feminism hat too but I had a, uh, a, a pro women's rights shirt on and there was just an influx in commentary around like, you know, there should be a, a you know, a, a national men's day and like, I'm sick of feminists and all this stuff. And I got in there and responded to all those comments and, uh, and I like enjoyed doing so. Uh, I don't, I don't view myself as, uh, you know, being on a soapbox talking about, uh, social equality because I also realize that I'm a straight white male. And uh, f if you go back into generations, like just calling it directly down the middle is like straight white males have been like the oppressors across like race, religious beliefs, gender, sexual orientation, you name it. Um, and so like understanding a root as a straight white male and how I can be perceived as like, oh, you know, this and that. Uh, you have to uh, figure out a way to engage in that topic, um, share your beliefs, do so in an educated way, answer those who require that, that, that level of, of uh, response, and then be willing to like take the back seat to those who are, are the real activists that move the needle. And in our sport, uh, at least I'll talk races like Kyle Harrison, Jovan Miller, Chaz Woodson, uh, even like Jules Henenberg now, like these are black athletes in lacrosse that, uh, you know, walk in, in their shoes every day in a sport that is predominantly white, uh, whose fathers have played the game as well in an era during the civil rights era where there was like actual racism, like they have real exposure. Um, and so what I can be is, and you use it as an ally encourage other people to be more empathic and understand that like, yeah, while we've certainly taken significant strides, I think uh, both politically, uh, educationally, uh, as, as a society to understand and try to equalize uh, significant racism that preexisted at us is that there are still, uh, there are still big racial undertones in this country. Uh, but more importantly, someone like Kyle, and I've shared with him as before, is very close with his father who was subject to a lot of racism and, and like Kyle feels that, you know, I, I try to think about if I were black and my dad who I'm deeply connected with was subject to that type of racism, like how would I feel about that? And, and so I think that when people talk about like trying to be empathic and understanding someone's narrative, try not to just jump to, well, you know, we, you know, established affirmative action and like we're, you know, there's, there's equal opportunity and blah, blah, blah now. And like, that's, a, that's good, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an actual experience from a human's perspective. Uh, and that's when I, when we talk about our, our, uh, what I do, that that's more or less how I try to share my message. 
I think the most important thing that you mentioned was empathy. That makes sense. That was yeah, a lot. Yeah. No, I thought okay. it made a lot of sense. But I, I think I the, keep thinking the about takeaway. being you in the in the beginning yeah. where you were like, you spoke for 20 minutes yeah, yeah. on my <laughs> podcast. Now I'm doing that. Yeah. I definitely rose the tension really high in the beginning of the podcast. It made you really <laughs> nervous. But, but I, I was going to say the most important takeaway from that is empathy. Yeah. We had a guest on this podcast named Houston Kraft, who's a love and kindness advocate. And he actually does like empathy workshops. He's made a career out of going around and speaking about empathy and teaching people what it means to actually practice empathy. Yeah. And it actually goes on both sides of the, the coin. Like you mentioned, um, if, you, if you have one political point of view and you're just constantly being given that, um, it's tough for you to empathize with the other side. It's tough for you to actually understand and try and deeply receive yeah. any sort of point of view from that side because we can choose our content now. We can choose who we follow. Sure. And with an athlete, like I think it's interesting that people have certain expectations of you. And I thought one of the most interesting things was, I think it was, um, maybe it was pride. You posted something about pride and yeah. I think there was about 10,000 comments. Yeah. 10,000 comments. There was comments that, that ranged from, um, you know, I'm, I'm ripping up the poster of you in my room. I'm unfollowing, I'm unsubscribing, I'm never gonna go to your games again. Um, and I found that to be fascinating. Yeah. You know, I, I, I live in Los Angeles, I'm from a very mm. accepting community. You know, I'm, I, I would never had experienced something like that. And like, of course I've experienced some level of, of uh, you know, maybe some, some small hints, especially going to lacrosse camp as an Indian guy. Like you experience some racism, um, some some comments. I got into my first fist fight at lacrosse camp because of that. But looking at that on your Instagram, I was fascinated by the concept that people are following you and they have such a aggressive like it, it it crushed their view of you. Yeah. And and that story was actually picked up by the Huffington Post. Right. Um, and a lot of that was talked about. Um, do you ever fear? Like do, I can imagine that a lot of athletes fear sharing their point of view because of a loss of fans and maybe thinking about segmenting, you know, myself as an athlete and then my personal beliefs. But, you know, do you think that that, sh that should be or, or what do you think about blending those two things? And so, so kind of I, yeah, so I, I was I was riffing on that like analogy that I was trying to create around why you know, it's important for athletes and influencers to take that step mm -hmm. forward and share their point of view uh, because they do get access to all of those people and they can share. And that's really powerful in a world where there's so much divisiveness. Um, so I encourage all athletes to do that. I think it's really important, though, that you're educated on a specific topic. And so uh, on Pride Day, Right. Not just posting your support, but knowing like the history of of, you know, the LGBTQ community and the oppression that they faced and uh, and how recent that has been uh, in particular. Um, and then try to understand national state by state laws and 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 so on. Uh, that way you feel more confident. It's like studying for a test or, or getting ready for a game um, It's not just like you know, going out and playing, you know, understanding all the plays, you know, your opponent and, and you feel more confident in your position. Um, so that's what I would say. I, I think on uh, empathy is that th there's two really huge buzzwords that are in today's culture and uh, it's empathy and vulnerability. I spent a lot of time on it because I, I, I love both. They've, they have both uh, changed my life and it's not something that, uh, that I believe anyone can master. Um, without, you know, uh, you know, 
becoming Buddha. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's like, it, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process, but, but empathy, the way I think about it is, is like pretty simple. Um, we're trained, it's kind of innate, but, uh, because of like society and how we develop, um, and I guess that's case by case, but we are, are constantly seeking to be understood constantly. Uh, I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to explain my point of view. I'm fumbling around in some cases, but like, this is how I think and understand where I'm coming from. And, and uh, empathy is seeking to understand, it, but doing so while completely eliminating your narrative. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, is it, you're, you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes and the feedback is, well, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, we're all three males, we're not females, and we don't understand fully what it's like to be a female, and how could I ever do that? Because it's an out-of-body experience. So, it, you know, there's not an actual, like, hey, let's get in their shoes and, and walk their walk. Uh, but, but I think the process of tr just eliminating your bias, rather than seeking to be understood, you just try to seek to understand, that's being an empath. And then with regard to vulnerability, there's a lot of conversation around being vulnerable and that's showing your true self. Uh, it's really hard to do. I, I think that uh, embracing the notion that uh, perfection doesn't exist, that we're, we're, we're made of, uh, we're comprised of a number of mishaps and failures, uh, but vulnerability is uh, you know, the ability to, to show your weaknesses and to be okay with them and to share them with others. And it's, it's a moment that it's, 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 it's a sliding scale, uh, but you feel it. You feel it when uh, you're connecting with someone and you're sharing something that feels almost uh, too dicey to share, but you have to trust that person that that space that you've created with them is, is, is ample and secure enough to do so. Um, one thing that I like to encourage people on, because this is an easier task uh, around practicing being vulnerable, is accepting compliments. And it sounds odd because, uh, you know, it's like, oh, hell yeah, I'll accept a compliment all day. Um, but we have this ability, if we lack vulnerability, and I'm pointing at myself, lacked it for 30, my first 30 years of my life, is we defer on compliments. So someone say like, you had a great game and all that. Ah, I missed two shots, that could have been better. Like, that was an awesome podcast. And I was like, ah, man, yeah, it's just, this one point it could have gone this. Just like, nah, fuck that, just say thank you. Like someone complimenting you, like, there's, there's a role that, they, that they're in at that moment because they're giving themselves to you to say like, I really care about you or awesome job. And there's actually this play that you're making when you defer it. It's just like, no, I don't need your, uh, your praise or your gratitude. Pre like, it's not for me. I could have been better. So not only are you deferring what you should be accepting, practice that and accept someone's gratitude, but you're also in a way like deflecting on them. And that's not a good experience for someone to say like, hey, you know, Colin, I, I, I love your hat today. And you're good at it. You're like, yeah, thanks. I appreciate I it. I did. I, yeah, I said thank you. It's a great said, hat. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's interesting, though. It is a very... It's an easy one to practice. I think though. that's a very common thing that people feel. I, f I find that way a lot of times when I get praise on something. And, and I, I take this reaction in a way of your praise, like, belittles how much I value my own action. Like, I don't need it. Which is, which is a defensive reaction that doesn't have to happen. Ego. If, if yeah. you say, great, great work on that video, and I, and I deflect it. 
because I feel like it, it for some reason belittles how great it really is. Like I don't need your praise for it. Well, we're trained in sports to do that too, right? Like ah, well, is my team, you know, and mm. and you know he. Rob had a fantastic pass to me. He sees the field so well, and my job was easy. I just caught it and put it in the net. Um, and so th there's definitely, like, the the strategic component of sports. So I got to like, acknowledge that as an example in a press conference. Like, you never want to create poster board material for the opponents that are that are upcoming. But, uh, but yeah, we're well, in many ways through sports where we program ourselves to deflect um, and, and to not accept – um, and I think that's a, it's a great and easy first step to working on, you know, being more vulnerable is just like accepting someone's praise. It sounds fun, too. So I think it's, it's pretty clear now through this podcast, um, through what we've been talking about, that, you know, you are much more than an athlete. And that's, you know, that, that phrase is very uh, in tune with what LeBron is, LeBron. is you know, yeah. LeBron is doing right now and uninterrupted, which I, I absolutely love that, that company and everything he's doing. But you are, um, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You are a media creator. Uh, you, you've operated many different types of businesses. You've invested. You've done so much. Um, it, when you first committed to being a lacrosse athlete, to me, that was also a very entrepreneurial move because it's not a plug and play move right. like an NBA player or a uh, or, or an NFL player. It's right. not plug and play. You actually have to operate your own business and become the CEO of of your own life, um, especially in in lacrosse. Today, you've you've started a lot of businesses, you know. So looking back at stepping into committing your life to lacrosse full time. And today, committing your life even deeper to the sport yep. by launching your own professional league. How, why continue to create? Why continue to put yourself in the situation of, of being um, a creator and entrepreneur when you've kind of made it as an athlete? What, what, you know, why continue yeah. on that path by starting your own professional league? Yeah, well, I think we looked at I, I should say, I, I, as a player professionally, and you, you kind of described it that way, is I had to be an entrepreneur in addition to play professional lacrosse. The rookie wage when I graduated in 2008 was $6,000 for the season, for the whole season, not per game. And then average wage in uh, pro lacrosse for the last 18 years or so has been eight to $8,500 um, a year. Average. Average, yeah. So, like, you know, you're you're covering in LA a month and a half of rent. Um, <laughs> so, so, so anyway, there, there's uh, there's also been this pretty like pretty big and in, in, um, uh, steep hockey stick curve of growth in a way in sports because of new media and rights fees have gone up. And live games, to many kind of um, media forecasters and original programming, live sports is the most uh, suspenseful form of original content because you have communities that are pulling for two sides. In some cases, it's good versus evil. They're battling till the end, and no one knows the result. Um, and so that, that has continued to raise the stakes for sports properties. 
Um, introducing new media has enabled audiences of games to access their favorite players and watch games, whether it's through live streaming of technology or other platforms. Uh, unlike previously to 2008 and the emergence of big tech, was if you were a pro sports league, you had to be on a major network, and that either costed a ton of money or it required you to have ownership groups that owned venues, and the list goes on. So we had this big opportunity that I've kind of grown witness to through creating and learning about media with you guys and sponsorship kind of on my own with different agencies. And then I've run in parallel as an investor and operator with my brother who played football in college. He's two years senior to me. Uh, and he was recently out in Silicon Valley running uh, revenue for a business that we had invested in called Funding Circle. So we had always talked about our next big project together. And I think the more we looked at lacrosse as an opportunity, uh, the more we felt like we could actually and immediately change the way that the athletes are treated uh, and then the way the game is distributed and the way that the athletes and the teams and the coaches and then the leagues are, are marketed. Um, and so we had the tools to do so. We felt like we had the network of influencers like yourselves that were creative directors early on um, to access to the investors to get it done. So it was, a, uh, it was a probably six to eight months of concept and dev and then conversations with the incumbent, so Major League Lacrosse, to uh, try to work with them on either building a new venture together or acquiring them or them, you know, working with us on a number of different other fronts. We couldn't figure that out. So we continued down the path of starting from fresh, um, raised venture capital, uh, just recently announced uh, a second round of, of funding from more venture capital uh, because starting a pro sports league different than a tech company quickly is, uh, is basically a race to scale. It's laborious technology. You can do so with a couple of engineers, you create product market fit, then you go out and you raise money, um, to basically build out a sales team to take your software or software as a service out to the market and, and expand it on some customer acquisition cost algorithm in, in sports. It's like, okay, we have payroll of players. We have infrastructure costs, we have venue costs, we have executive team costs, and we gotta have a lot of executive. World Surf League, which right in Santa Monica, they have 140 employees. Like, it, these are big businesses. So while we have venture backing, um, it's different. Our, our Series A is different than a, a technology company Series A, just, just as an example. So I think also just real quick to jump in, just yeah, to, just to give a, me, a, a, a frame, <laughs> <laughs> but just to give everyone a frame of reference, this would be like if a, the top creator on YouTube, so let's say, I don't know, Logan Paul or Mr. Beast or some, some big, or PewDiePie, PewDiePie. If PewDiePie was like, you know what? YouTube isn't doing it right. They aren't treating their creators right. I'm going to raise money and start my own version of YouTube. And yeah. I'm, and I'm bringing everyone with me. Right. And I'm bringing all the top creators with me and we're going to pay them upfront fees and we're going to, you know, like to, get, we're going to give them health insurance. Yeah. So, so it's a, an equity it's a, in, the, in the new platform. It's a very significant I, yeah. uh, thing to happen, but I just wanted to contextualize it if, if someone didn't, Fully understand. Yeah, exactly I'm, I'm glad you stopped me. It, it's nearly impossible uh, to explain a sports league um, on a, on a podcast of unless course. like we dedicate. We could do yeah. more episodes and of talk course. about it. We probably will because <laughs> yeah. you live in LA now, yeah, so right. we brought, this won't be the last time you're on our. But podcast. but I will say that Mike and I and and I've and I've shared this a number of times, um, probably publicly, but 
if if we if I was playing in the NBA, I'll put it this way, and uh, and we had investors, and we wanted to take ownership at some point and and participate in the upside because we believed as kind of a founding team in the commercial viability of where the NBA is and where it can be 10, 20 years from now, that we would put a group together and buy a team. Mm-hmm. Like th- that model is great. Um, so what we were looking at in, in pro lacrosse was the, the, the existing model um, wasn't working. And so we've changed the model. We're tour-based. So when we were working with MLL initially, it was like, hey, this is our vision for where we think a non-Big Four sports property needs to be to succeed. Because it's not just about players and distribution, it's about the economics of the business. And team sports have, for since its, its existence in Major League Baseball, have been digested on a team sports city-based model. And that was because people in the 10s and 20s would go to the local ballpark, there was just local radio and local newspaper at the time, and most people didn't live outside of the neighborhood they grew up in, and they supported their local team. And that local ballpark was founded and, and, um, and financed by the ownership group. Media grew from local to national to instant replay development to OTT, and now you can watch games all over the world uh, on, like, immediately and live, and you access your I mean, players. we watched the Super Bowl in Mexico this year. So that's the media that we had access that we have access. Just to. wanted to throw that in there as a flex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> weird flex, but okay. You Sorry. Know. Yeah, you, you should have seen the view. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's a great have you view. Been to Mexico. I have. Yeah. I have. Yeah. 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 All right, carry on. Okay. Sorry. So, but the infrastructure thing is what we look at with our tour-based model. Is that non-big four sports? They have ownership groups that are investing in in kind of the the, the business, but many of them, and in our sports case, no one owns a venue. So what we were stuck in a position of is being a tenant on a lease of a non-optimal pro sports league venue. And then you go back and forth with home and away teams because that's what's always been done to figure out your schedule. You de-optimize for the schedule for not only your fans, but more importantly for the networks. You're never able to get a network deal. Uh, So we said, let's look at NASCAR, let's look at PGA Tour, even WWE and UFC where you descend upon a major market city, all of your teams and all, or all of your players in their cases are playing there over that weekend. You can control the game times. So what we did is said, let's keep the full regular season schedule, the all-star break, the playoffs, and a championship, except we're eliminating the home and away. We're optimizing for the venue, and we're coming in and doing a full weekend takeover. Okay, NBC, what are your time availabilities on Maine and on NBC Sports? That Saturday and Sunday. Well, Paul and team, we have Saturday at 2 and Sunday at, at 7 p.m. Can you do it? We're done. Right? And, and granted, there's a lot of conversation. NBC was super interested in this emerging property, and we're co-partners in this. But that was a way that we were solving for the model. And it's very different because people are used to supporting their team with a city tag to it. Um, but with all the new media, as it's evolved over this 10 years since we've started this conversation and started working together is that athletes have become the more important uh, and more sought after source of team affinity. Mm-hmm. So people love Steph Curry. They support yeah. the Warriors on the East Coast. It's, it's just starting to happen where, you know, LeBron James and the NBA, which brand is bigger, right? And like probably more people care about LeBron James. 
Yeah, and right? that's and that's big, right? That's that's, big. that's, that's NBA. Big. Yeah, and LeBron. I mean, I, the, the the first six players on the Lakers all individually have larger social followings than the Lakers, and this is the right. LA Lakers. Yeah, right. And, and so a, yeah, that's a big deal. It's that, a huge deal. That, that never people didn't have access to that before, where you could just own your own audience. So yeah. I think that like innovating in these types of models, you know, YouTube has done it in the media business. We saw it with Logan Paul KSI, a boxing match where these two YouTubers were like, you know what, we'll box. We'll have our own live stream on YouTube. And they were able to command more viewership than a lot of UFC fights and a lot of boxing matches. They're just disrupting it. And now it's just, everything's prime for it. Like we're so rooted in tradition. And we're like, oh, sports league is supposed to run this way. This is how, if you're, oh, you're starting a sports league, we need this. But like being open, I think being a a creator and innovator and and the, the creator that you are, just being able to see see it through a different lens and be like, no, let's just move with the way of the world. Let's, let's change it. Yeah. And I tried to draw an analogy. I use the NBA as reference to what you were talking about uh, with creators on YouTube is that I, I think, you know, there, there are certainly challenges and YouTube's got a great executive team and underneath Google as well as they have got an incredible platform tools and they're constantly thinking about how to drive value with their creators. And they were the first platform, I think, at least from what I recall, to to allow creators to more regularly monetize. And uh, and other groups are trying to catch up to that. Uh, mass platforms, I should say. So you know, I, I wanted to I wanted to emphasize that we're not these like sharp elbowed entrepreneurs that see lacrosse as an emerging sport that has this commercial viability and this great path to return on an investment. So let's like try to rip the carpet out from underneath the incumbent. Like that was never the intention. And we took the the steps on the outset to try and work with them to right the ship. Um, but at some point, if you're, if you have as much conviction as, as I do around this game and the relationship that I have with my peers and teammates and even foes in some cases, it's like you also get to a place where you're either going to act or you're not. And, and one of the best bits of advice I got from uh, an investor, and, and it had nothing to do with sports, but he sits, he sits on the board at first round, and, and he had said uh, one of his favorite questions to ask founding teams are, uh, why not two years ago and why not two years from now? Uh, and it's a way to really break down timing, which is a big piece, timing to me being building a brand and getting an endorsement, timing to launching a new league. And, and all of the indicators have said, like, if we're going to do this, we do it, like, right now. Um, and so we, we had to take that bet. That was awesome. I like that. Thanks. That always gets me pumped up. Like, you told me that. Why not two years ago? Why not two years from now? And Colin yeah. and I talk about that through our ideas all the time. It's so important. I mean, I look at Lacrosse Network. I, it couldn't have happened right now. Yeah, I, it could not have happened right now. It, Super it was hard to build an it audience was, right now. It was exactly that time. Yeah, you know, and even the fact that you know the company was acquired, it was exactly the right time for all of that. Yeah. So, uh, I think if you have any sort of idea, like that question's really, really important. The question yeah. of timing, and try to be really objective about it, and ask other people. I have, I have this, I have this problem uh, around asking. I, I like to ask other people, but sometimes because I, I think it's just more of excitement. I I, uh, I will like hedge an answer. Mm. Like I'll, I'll give our our team logos, which we haven't released yet. For example, I like to share them with you know equally women and men and younger kids and and older folks. 
And I was so excited around these designs I'd first shared and be like, you know, look at that logo. That one's awesome, isn't it? And, and I didn't even give them a chance to give me feedback. Right. So like give someone a chance to give you unsolicited or in this case, solicited objective feedback and don't interfere. We did that with this podcast at, at the end of the year. We put out a Google form uh, that had quest, guided questions and then also just free space for um, feedback. And I was so grateful for the audience to actually go in, take the time. There's no, we're not giving you anything in advance or, or, or in return outside of just a better show for you next year. And the amount of people that did it and were so thoughtful with the responses, we just live in a world where you can get feedback anytime. You can post something on your Instagram and ask, what do you guys think of this? And people will respond. Amazing. That's crazy. That's so nice that you, that yeah. your audience participated in that. That was, that was honestly, it was, it was so awesome for us to go through that and really just read all the responses and understand what would make this a better show. One of my business partners, uh, gave me advice to do this at the end of last year. So it was end of 2017 going into 2018 and I ended up not taking it. Um, and I didn't do it this year, uh, but I'd like to do it at some point, but do do that exact same thing, except with your closest friends. And it's like a personal feedback and it's, and it's, uh, completely, uh, like, uh, completely agnostic of, uh, you keep it, you keep it anonymous. And, uh, and I think it would be, a, talk about vulnerability, a really interesting exercise. And these are like ways that you can improve as, as a person. I love that. I think about that a lot, uh, especially recently, even with this podcast, listening to some of our old episodes and hearing how much I say like, right, or um, things that just draw on and don't need to be there. Yeah. And I think about, you know, I'm giving that feedback to myself, but I think it, there is so much value into having just three or four really close friends Totally. be able and you don't get that that often right yeah. a- unless you really might have to ask for it but but you know uh no that stuff is 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 important as a as a podcaster i think is you want to improve technically uh but but what i'm talking about is uh is getting feedback like hey paul um sometimes i get aggravated because you don't return my calls that would be the most right. difficult feedback, I think, to solicit. Totally, but and that, to get that's it honestly, kind of stuff. like I feel, and, and I feel like, you know, we love each other, we care about each other, we have great conversations, but it's typically on your terms. Like stuff like that is is I think really important to hear and, and lean into, and that's where you like really improve. Uh, so that's like the type of uh, next level survey, and, and and you did this with regard to your business. So I was just saying like, hey, this this that's so good that it would be that great uh, personally too to get that type of feedback from people you care about. So it's gotta be like your four, mm. you know, uh, let's say a, a coined, uh, maybe, she, maybe she calls it your, your, your four square, your square. This Brene Brown in her latest book, she talks about uh, creating out, creating a, uh, like a, a two by two card that fits into your wallet and writing the people that you trust the most on it so it's like a reminder to hit them up more regularly uh, and spend more time with them because his life is crazy uh, and fast. But, uh, but those are the people that you would uh, solicit for the survey. So this is something you're looking to do personally, um, yeah. but you have yet to do. I haven't done it. Is that something you're also putting into the PLL? Because I know the PLL opens up to the audience and asks for feedback, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Are you also building something like that that's a little bit more intimate. 
I, I think we I think we could we will with our players, but I, I think there's a there's a difference between you you have to really be careful around um, the the level of intimacy that is established or, or defined, um, and so again like podcast PLL there's constructive forums for feedback that are really valuable to the business. Um, but I, I was like veering us back into, cause we have, a, I think we have a really good bond. I'm grateful for it. Uh, there's, and we talk a lot personally about our lives and trials and tribulations and successes and so on. Um, it is that like to, to, to do feedback with your, with your inner circle of, of friends and family, um, around real shit is like, pretty I think it's it's, mm -hmm. it's 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 equally probably more scary than it is uh, anything else but like that's vulnerable yeah. having someone that you care about give you feedback totally. around shit that you're not good at and it would hurt I feel discomfort just thinking about it thinking mm -hmm. about it yeah but I, I like I, then I get excited I, I feel discomfort but a lot of excitement like th th that's a cool concept I, yeah. I think I will try and do that yeah I've really had a desire, uh, and I actually asked my mom this question when she called in on my 30th birthday, which was one of our last podcasts. I asked her, and I've really been wanting to ask her and my dad this lately, what do you think I don't understand? Like, what's something when you look at me, you think I don't get right now? Just about how I'm living my life. Mm -hmm. And whether I agree with it or not, I would really like to understand that from certain people, mm. from a higher level. Like, what, am I, what am I missing, what in your say? opinion? My mom, she's, you know, my mom, she loves me and she thinks I'm perfect. So. <laughs> she, she didn't, Shout out to the mom. She didn't, yeah, she didn't give me that much. She said she has to think more about it, <laughs> which maybe meant She'll she didn't want to get great. that. Maybe she didn't want to get that vulnerable. Maybe she didn't want to yeah. talk about it, but it is a question I've really been thinking about God, lately. I love getting vulnerable with my parents now. Um, it's just so great. And it's that's what I imagine. How much, how much you love them and how great they are. Uh, I had, uh, had advice from my therapist actually recently, I, my, my family and I went up to see my granddad who's uh, 96 now, uh, and he goes in and out of the hospital cause he's like more prone to colds and try to veer away from pneumonia and so on. Um, so we, we, uh, we went up to, to visit him and her advice to me was, you know, be, uh, be, be really intentional around the questions that you have, sort of like you had. Uh, and I, I was kind of like, what do you mean? And she was like, this is someone who, uh, who you love, who you have an established level of intimacy with that you can share, would be honest with. This is also someone that like lived through the Great Depression. He's like seen both world wars. Like there's so much shit that this guy has that you've never tapped into. And she knows because I've told her I haven't. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like, you know, it's like getting access to like, you know, a handful of your favorite books mm. verbally, like sitting down. So think about the people that you're talking with, uh, especially those that you don't get as many uh, occurrences with regularly. There's this Wait But Why article I read that's also very scary, uh, but they use imagery to uh, illustrate how much time we have left with certain people in our life. Um, and, uh, and I'll use parents, for example. Um, it's, it's like a, it's a dotted graph and at the top of it, at the top of it, there's like the dots are like the size of specks because when we're young, we spend every waking hour with our parents and then the dots get bigger and bigger and it shades off based on age. So like, you know, I'm 33 now and the reality is, is I've spent, 
a vast majority of my, of my like waking hours with my parents already, that's past me. Mm. And there's like, you know, depending on who you are, you can look at some of these graphs and where you live is like, you have like, you know, a couple dozen more, more uh, occasions with your folks left in your life. It's a Man. fucked up. It's, it's a really difficult read. to think about it. Yeah. Like that. Um, and, and it shows other things like, like professors and stuff. And, and you start getting this perspective. Like I just left the East coast now, right? I'm with you guys on the West coast. And, uh, I, I went to have dinner with some of like my closest friends and stuff on the last couple of weeks I had on the East coast. And, uh, and one of them was this, um, you know, well-respected alumni of, of, uh, of Johns Hopkins. His name is Neil Grauer. He's famous for drawing the Blue Jay uh, cartoon. And uh, he was, he's always taking care of uh, you know, graduates and undergrads at the program. He lives right next to the school. He's, uh, he writes for the school paper. He's authored dozens of books around Hopkins medicine, the Hopkins lacrosse. And I've probably, you know, I've probably had 30 to 40 meals with him and see him at all events and took him out to dinner. And, uh, there was part of me that was thinking to myself, like, this might be the last time I ever see Neil in person. Um, and, uh, it just changes the experience. I didn't think about my phone once long kind of conversations that go in a direction, maybe of a lack of interest. I was just leaning into it. And uh, it's a da- it's a daunting perspective. I don't suggest like having it with you all the time, but but it makes you appreciate those encounters, Ugh, right? Man. I mean, I-, I think about that that I've signed up to see my parents less than both of my brothers. It's just yeah. by the nature of what I'm doing out here. I've signed up to see them less moving forward than the rest of my family. Yeah. But it definitely makes me appreciate so much more when I do get to spend time with them. And like you said. Uh, to just say like how much I love, like you love your parents when you're yep. with them, right? That sometimes, you know, I don't think had I moved this far away and spent less time with them, maybe would I have recognized truly as as quickly. And that's what's that's also what's great about scarcity too, hmm. is it opens your eyes to things that you formerly would take for granted. But now with you, we get to have you all the time. Yeah, I, so I mean, we're my, good. Your, our, our dots just shrunk. So we get to see each other more and there's more mapping to it. I'll, I'll send you guys the link so you can, yeah. you can link to this article uh, because they, they, they drill down on, on like holidays and how often, you know, right. you're, you're seeing your family. Well, and life expectancy I, th- and so on. Th- there's so much to get into with you and I'm so glad you live in Los Angeles because I think we'll definitely have you back on the You're podcast. wrapping the show. How long have we been doing this for? <laughs> it like an Man, hour and a half? Paul, you're calling me out right now. <laughs> that's that's my wrapping up voice. An hour but, 15? Yeah, hour 15. Yeah. It's not yeah. bad. But, but I, I did want to talk about, you, you, you know, just grazed over your um, conversation with your therapist. Yeah. And one thing I, I really have learned from you over the years is just kind of broken down my view of being like working on self, self-development, yeah. self-awareness self-realization, self-care, self-care. Like I think it's so fascinating that as an athlete, again, um, someone who's very outspoken about the fact that they do therapy and that they journal and that meditate and do yoga. And I I just am curious just to talk about self-care, how you view it and how do you prioritize it with all the stuff you're carrying between training um, playing, uh, creating, yeah. being a business owner. Like, how do you find time for self-care? Well, going back to that uh, vulnerable comment is, uh, 
you know, and, and around being like imperfect is, uh, I, uh, I, I, I went through a, probably a two and a half year part of my life where I was prioritizing self-care and self-help and that type of guidance way above anything else. And it was so beneficial to me. Um, and then like we go through stages in our life right now, we're building this business and I'm prioritizing that. And in some cases prioritizing it over my own, uh, self. And, uh, and so we always ebb and flow. I tell people with meditation, for example, that uh, the, 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 the most common reason people don't is that they say they can't get their mind to calm down. And it's like, that's okay. No one does. And that's not what meditation is for. Meditation is for you to practice like watching your mind go crazy and then like acknowledging it when it is. And that act alone can get it to calm down. I think you, you told me something really important when I first started meditating regularly, which was it's like pulling up a beach chair to the side of a freeway yeah. and watching the thoughts yeah. just zoom. They're not going to slow they're down. Not, they're not going to go empty. The freeway is not going to go empty. No. It's just going to keep going. But you are now finding a way to settle in and play witness to that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, the, that analogy comes from Andy Puttacombe, who is the co-founder of Headspace. Is he the voice? He's also the voice. Man, it's... Uh, his, They're in Santa Monica. His voice is so soothing They're on me. my calendar. Really? Yeah. Well, I wow. like, I love Andy. Wow, yeah. that's great. He, yeah. he like liked one of my tweets once and wow. I was screenshotting it. Wow. Yeah. What a, what a, what, I mean, what a story he Really has. surprising how much I listen to that guy's voice. Oh guided, my, guided yeah. meditation. Uh, like we can go on another tangent about like where I think audio, <laughs> audio is going to continue to go in sports in particular. I think there's a huge yeah. opportunity in guided instruction and other stuff. But to your, to your question, um, with, uh, you guys are just like giving each other looks. So no, that's because we have an idea to yeah, share yeah, with you yeah. in, in guided, off, okay. in guided self care. Okay, yeah. we'll do it off the pod. Off yeah. the pod. Yeah. Well, yeah. Now you all know. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so self care. Um, you know, I I look at therapy. At first, uh, I got into. I like towed in, towed my foot in the water with uh, sports psychology. Sports psychology was like, you know, he's trying to get better on the field, and uh, and that's okay. Uh, and, and there, that was really valuable. This guy, John Elliott, who's based in Texas and works across major league baseball and NBA. And we created tactics for my performance. And then that was helpful because I had a huge temper and was really reactive and very uh, introspective and I couldn't get out of my own way. Solved for that. Then we went into the locker room and became about relationships with teammates. And then I used that as a jumping off to personal therapy where I could learn about my relationships across the board. And I spent so much time um, understanding the, the connection that we talked about, that one-to-one, one-to-two, one-to-three connections that we have in our life, and then learned a lot about my role in all of those. And, uh, and how we, uh, whether, you're, whether you study stoicism, um, a lot of that has to do with you know, your role and how you react to both bad and good. That's the one thing that we can control is our response. And the Stoics know that. We can't, for the most part, like nothing else that happens, we have any say in. It, the only thing we have say in is how our mind responds and what we do verbally or physically. Um, so I just was so riveted by the process and I began you know, buying books and listening to, you know, 
Dan Savage's love casts on relationship therapy to, uh, you know, Joe Rogan interviewing, you know, Jack Dorsey most recently and him talking about how like they view the, the one-to-one connection through social. Uh, I was buying books and, and listening to Ted talks and, uh, and then I was starting applying it to myself and meditation was a big way that I, uh, that I could call myself in the mornings and in the evenings. Uh, journaling was a great way to get my thoughts on paper. And so I could kind of think more creatively and, and go out and execute and then I think the biggest of all is just is sharing. Um, it, it completes the, the 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 full learning cycle of absorbing content via listening or reading um, to then digesting to then sharing it. And when you share, I think it, it accentuates the, the 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 whole kind of purpose of of what we're what we've gathered and what we've done today. Man, that's really interesting. I never thought about closing the loop like that, but I've had that experience where I became a much better lacrosse player when I became a lacrosse coach. Yep. Like much, much better, significantly better. Well, think about school, uh, the, 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 the subject matter that we um, retain the most are often the classes like where there's oral presentations mm-hmm. that are involved. So For you sure. get up and you teach the material back to the kid, to your peers. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to wrap up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go deeper on, on creativity, on self-care. Um, but How was this? That's another this podcast. good? It's Do you great. guys feel good about it? it? It's great. Okay. So I have one question for you. Yeah. Um, PLL. Now, I worked in sports, Colin and I worked in sports for you know the past seven years. All of our career has been in sports. We worked with Major League Baseball, and I sent an email at one point, including ex- executives from Major League Baseball, and I called it the MLB, and... I got an internal email being like, you cannot yeah. call it the MLB. Yeah. Is it the PLL or is it just PLL? No, so so the MLB doesn't make sense because that's the, the Major League Baseball. Yep. So we have the Premier Lacrosse League. You can also call us Premier Lacrosse League. Okay. But that doesn't hurt us grammatically. Great. So you can follow the <laughs> you can follow the PLL at PLL on Instagram. You, you can go. follow Paul Rabel at Paul Rabel. That's R-A-B-I-L yes. uh, across Twitter, anywhere. Check out his YouTube channel. That's definitely a great place to get access to who Paul is as a person Yep. and what he's building. Uh, and he'll definitely be on the show again. Yeah. Paul? Look forward to it. Thanks. Can I do what we did to start this? And three, two, one. That's not the button. That wasn't That's it. not the button. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And three, and two, two one. one. Let's go get something to eat. That's it this week for the Colin and Samir podcast. Make sure to check out Paul across his social platforms. You can just search Paul Rabel. That's R-A-B-I-L. Also check out the Premier Lacrosse League. You can check that out on Instagram, just at P-L-L, and just search it on Google. You'll read a ton of articles and see all the interesting things that Paul is doing with this new venture. And if you're interested in a deeper look, Colin and I directed a web series that is on Paul's YouTube channel titled The League. It's a four-part series that goes into the launch of the Premier Lacrosse League. If you've been enjoying the podcast, make sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And just a reminder, we're on Anchor now. So if you have the Anchor app, you can actually leave us a voice message. I thought it'd be cool if we ended this episode with a voice message we recently got from Ethan Drury. Hey, Colin and Samir, I just want to say you guys have a great show. Definitely teaching a guy like me that, you know, you can do it if you put your mind to it. So yeah, I just want to say you guys got a new fan. 
And yeah, have yourselves a good day. Thanks.